Well, thanks again for being here. I hope you're enjoying our service. Uh, uh, we're just having a great time. Thanks for sharing your July 4th weekend with us, a time that we should celebrate our nation's independence and a special time for us as, as a country and uh, just glad that you're here. And again, I, I don't know if you caught it, but uh, on the announcements before this last song, uh, Come to the Altar, was actually Carter's wife, Kaylee. Uh, Kaylee Wynn was doing that, and she was reminding you that we have a concert uh, tonight at the Clyde Park, and we're going to have a good time there. So if you don't have anything else going, come on out. Fireworks start at 10, but uh, Grace Music will be putting on a concert at 7, and uh, Carter will be leading that, but it's our, our, all our musicians, and uh, sounds like a great time. Well, we're in a series uh, in, through the book of Philippians called A Life of Unshakable Joy. And as we dive into that, where we left off last time, which is in Philippians chapter 1, I, I just want to tell you, we get that circumstances are hard. And, and that we talk about joy, and a lot of times we think, well, yeah, I know I should have more joy, but all this stuff is going on in my life. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. And I just want to remind you that Paul was no stranger to tough times. We talked a little bit about that last time. We talked about how he, he went to this city, Philippi, that he's now writing a letter to. And, uh, and when he crossed over into Europe, first city and all that, that things went good at the beginning, but things kind of turned south and, and uh, it didn't go so well for Paul. And, and then things got better. It's just up and his life was like a roller coaster. And I want to give you some more backstory uh, before today. And, and by the way, when I'm giving you the backstory, I'm not making this stuff up. It's actually in the Bible. Uh, it's in Acts. Uh, last time we were talking about Acts 16. And, and now I'm going to just kind of briefly overview the last several chapters of Acts. That tell, and that's Luke writing us, a historian Luke from the first century, writing us about uh, what these, some of these events that happened in Paul's life that led him uh, leading up to him writing this book to the church in Philippi that we call Philippians. All right, so Paul leaves Philippi and he finishes his mis missionary journey, he ends up back in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there's some controversy about his ministry because he's been uh, leading non-Jewish people called Gentiles to Christ. Well, he gets there and he spends some time in the temple and he's hanging out with some Gentiles, not in the temple, but a false rumor is intentionally spread about Paul that he has brought Gentiles, non-Jewish people, into the temple proper. And this causes a huge stir in Jerusalem among the Jewish people, and it actually incites a mob. They go after Paul, they drag him out, and they start beating him with the intention of killing him. So they're, and this was all a false charge. They're just trying to kill Paul. Some of the Roman guards who are responsible, especially a commander who's responsible for keeping the peace in Jerusalem, who's in a fortress that is right next to the Temple Mount that's actually been intentionally built a little higher so they could look down on the Temple Mount. They hear about the riot that's happening. So the commander comes with a few hundred soldiers and they intervene in this and he rescues a bloody and beaten Paul. He kind of asks the crowd what's going on, but, but it's a mob and he doesn't get a straight answer. So he arrests Paul, takes him back to the, the guard, the barracks, uh, the, this fortress that's right next to the Temple Mount. He wants some answers, so he decides he's going to interrogate Paul. 
Well, the interrogation back in, the, in those days meant that you tied a guy up and you stretched him out and then you flogged him until he said what you were, gave you the information that you're looking for. And as they're stretching Paul out and tying him with leather thongs, getting ready to flog him, he mentions uh, to the, the, the Romans that are doing this to him, he said, is it legal for you to beat a man who's a Roman citizen? He, he plays the Roman citizen card and it kind of freaks him out. Again, they're not expecting this guy to be a Roman citizen. So the centurion, who's over 100 men, he sends word to the commander. The commander kind of freaks. He comes down, find out what's going on, and they realize, whoa, the commander is now worried. He has arrested and kind of allowed this guy to be beaten, almost flogged him, and this guy's a Roman citizen. So he needs to get to the bottom of this and establish some formal charges against Paul or he's in trouble. So he calls a little council together and asks the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to come and meet with him and Paul and find out what the deal is. So they have a meeting. Paul gets to say his piece. Uh, they shout him down. Paul realizes that there's really two groups of Jews here and he uses that to his advantage by getting them to start arguing with each other. The commander gets kind of tired of it. He dismisses them all, keeps Paul in jail. The, Jew, the Jews come up with a plan. That Some of the Jewish leaders come up. They decide we're going to kill this guy once and for all. We know he's been spreading these things that we see as against Judaism. So we're going to ask the commander for another meeting tomorrow. We're going to ask him to bring Paul to us. And then en route, and we'll know the different routes he might take, we'll kill Paul. So that's their plan. As a matter of fact, 40 Jewish men take an oath that they will not eat again until Paul is dead. That's how serious this is. 40 guys. Well, Paul's nephew finds out about this plot, comes, visits Paul in the prison, tells him what's going on. Paul sends him to the commander uh, through a guard. And so they go and he, he spills the beans. And so the commander knows what's going on. The commander, realizing, wow, this situation is way more volatile than I thought it was, so he makes arrangements in the dead of night to get Paul out of there. So he takes a couple of hundred men, soldiers, and uh, about 50 cavalry men, and they get together as a cohort, and they put Paul in the middle of them, and they get Paul out of Dodge in the middle of the night. They actually go to a, a Roman stronghold on the way to Caesarea, but then the next day they take Paul on into Caesarea because that's where the governor of this province lives, and he can settle this, and his name is Felix. And so the commander sends Felix a letter kind of describing all the stuff that's going on with Paul. So now he's in jail in Caesarea. In a few days, the, the Jewish people find out he's not here. They go to the governor so they can level their, their charges against Paul. Felix hears all that, and he doesn't really get it. You know, he's not a religious man. He doesn't get the whole deal. But what, and he finally just sends them away. But he starts realizing some things. Number one, Paul's a citizen, a Roman citizen. But number two... This guy, he knows how to argue, and he's, he's a smart guy. He can defend himself. He also realizes that Paul's very influential among some people, the Christians, and he has a lot of friends on the outside. So Felix then decides, well, I'm going to hold on to Paul until his influential friends get together and offer me a bribe, and then I'll let him go. So I'm going to make a little money on the side. You know, it'll be a good deal. So he keeps Paul in prison, but the bribe never comes, and Paul spends two years 
in Caesarea, which is right on the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. And so after the two years, Felix now is replaced as the governor of that area with a man named Festus. Felix, as a, he knows that Paul probably should be released, but as a favor to the Jewish people on the way out the door, he decides to keep Paul in prison. Festus comes in, he's the new governor, so he now inherits the Paul problem. Again, the Jewish people know there's a change of guard uh, regarding the governorship, so they send a delegation from Jerusalem to renew their charges against Paul so they can get their hands on him, and they're going to kill him. Festus hears all the stuff, doesn't really get it, but you know he's, he doesn't really see that Paul's guilty of anything, so he kind of hangs on to Paul. But finally, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish people, put enough leverage on Festus that they're saying, hey, we need a trial, we need to revol- re- resolve this issue. And they say, Paul should come to Jerusalem for this, this trial. And same thing, they're going to try to kill him. Paul now, so Festus goes to Paul and says, I'm going to have a trial for you. I'm going to go, I'll attend it, and we're going to do it in Jerusalem. Paul knows, whoa, you're going to take me to Jerusalem? These people are going to kill me. So he, he sees go, just going to Jerusalem is a death sentence. So then he pulls the only card he has left, and that is, as a Roman citizen, he can appeal to Caesar. Now, the thing about doing this is once you do that, then that's that's the law. He goes to Caesar, and nothing can really change that. Festus now, Festus' hands are tied. Paul has to be sent um, to to the Caesar, has to be sent to Rome. So it's kind of a done deal. A couple months later, they arrange for a trip. Uh, they're going to take a boat across the uh, ship across the Mediterranean. It's not only Paul; it's several several prisoners that are heading to Italy, and they all set sail. On the way there, a few days out, they get into some rough weather, and uh, and they're just bare. They're on the very end of sailing season. It's they're approaching winter, and winter's a bad time to be sailing in the Mediterranean with the ships they had in those days. And so they're going, and things get kind of dicey on the sea. Paul tells the commander of the ship and the the guards that are there, hey, we need to put in, we need to winter somewhere. This isn't going to go well. Of course, they don't, he's not buying it. Both he, the commander, and the pilot of the ship, they just want to get this voyage over. They want to get back to Italy. They want to go to Rome. So they, they keep kind of pressing it. Sure enough, weather gets worse. And finally, uh, they're, they're, they have to let their ship run. They're, they can't fight the storm anymore. They don't know where they're at. They're lost at sea, and their ship is just being driven along, and it's out of control. There's nothing they can do about it. They just kind of cut away all the sails and, and let it go. Finally, the ship hits some rocks near the island of, of a place called Malta, and they realize, the, and, and as the surf keeps pounding the ship and the ship's bottom is against the rocks, they realize the ship's breaking up. It's breaking apart. It's not going to survive. The procedure then is for the Roman soldiers to kill all the, all the prisoners because you can't have your ship going down and some of them swim to shore and some make it and some don't. And, and all of a sudden you have prisoners escaping. They all need to die to make sure that doesn't happen. So the Roman soldiers that are responsible for them, they don't get killed. So they're getting ready to kill all the prisoners, but the commander stops him. He seems to be a little bit more impressed with Paul over these last few weeks. And so he decides, and Paul says, hey, the ship's going down, but we're all going to live. Commander says, don't kill him. 
Those who can swim, swim for it. There's a place, there's a shore, head for it. You can barely see it. And so they start swimming. The people that can't swim, we're going to give you wood and planks and all the stuff that's falling apart off the ship. And you try to paddle yourself in. Sure enough, they do that and everyone survives. They winter there in Malta. Then the next spring, uh, another ship comes and they uh, arrange to have all the prisoners then shipped off to Italy. They get to Italy and then overland to Rome. And now Paul is in Rome. He doesn't, he's a prisoner, but he doesn't really have formal charges against him. And he's a Roman citizen. And because of that, he is allowed at his own expense to have a rented house. And he has some freedom. He can talk to people and have guests there. And he can write letters. And that's what he does. And it's in that circumstance that he writes this letter that we're looking at called Philippians. But the only drawback is he is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day in six-hour shifts. Every 24 hours, four different men cycling through. And this just isn't any Roman soldiers that, that he's chained to. It's the elite of the elite the Praetorian guards. And he's chained to them. And so everything he does, everybody he talks to, guard is there. When he eats, guard is there. When he sleeps, guard is there. When he leave, relieves himself, guard is there. I mean, he's always chained three foot away from a Roman. It's just the way he lives. He does that for a couple years. But, but here's my point. He goes through all that. Could you imagine? Could you imagine... If you or I were going through that, especially when you're trying to do everything God wants you to do, I mean, I'd be going, hello, God, what about me? What's going, am I doing something wrong? Am I doing something that you don't want me to do? I, I thought we had a plan here. I thought, you know, I thought this was going to work. What's going on? What about me? Did you forget about me? You know, and when, when things get messy in our lives, and, and our lives are just like Paul's, kind of a roller coaster, just maybe not with the extremes. We're not beaten. I mean, look at all he's faced. You know, all this stuff. Well, he's in prison now, and he's writing. And actually, he can't pay the, he has no means of making money. He's, he's in chains. So the people who know about Paul, including the people that we met last week, the people from Philippi, they send Paul money to pay his rent, which allows Paul to not be in the dungeon where he can write letters and receive people, which he wouldn't be able to do. And so they have sent him some money for rent so he can have this house, and he's writing them this letter, and he's thanking them. But as he's thanking them, he's also teaching them how to respond in difficult times. He's teaching them what to do when your circumstances go way south. How to bear up under that. That's really uh, what happens in this letter. That's, that's what's going on and that's what we're going to see as we pick up where we left off last time. And it's basically, he's saying this, look, there's... There's three responses, three ways we as believers can respond to difficult times. He just spells it out for us, and we see it in his life. He's not only telling us about it, he's modeling it for us. And we need to know this. 
because we hit hard times too. And if you've never had pain or difficulties or loss, if you've never experienced despair or loneliness or, or whatever, it's coming. Life's messy. And as believers, we need to know how to respond. The first thing that, that's so amazing in Paul's life is his response to all of this is joy. His response to all these situations is, I will rejoice. Look at, we're going to start, we're going to pick it up. Last time we stopped in verse 11, so we're going to pick it up in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? What then, he says? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul's priority here is the gospel. And that should be the priority of every believer. But because that's his priority, he looks at all of his circumstances and rather than say, hey, why me? Or rather questioning God, you know, what's going on or become bitter or anything else. What he does is he says, well, is God using this for his purposes? Is God using my situation to advance the gospel. And he comes to the conclusion, he is. And in that, that causes great joy for Paul. So even though he's chained, even though he doesn't have freedom, even though he's been there a couple years as the slow wheels of Roman justice kind of grind on, he's joyful. He's pumped. He's excited. He's sitting there with a smile on his face. Why, why would that be? Well, first of all, Paul's desire was actually to go preach in Rome because Rome's the capital of the empire. Rome is where the leaders are. And so he has this desire to impact not only just everybody else, but also the leaders of the society, the leaders of the empire. So he wants to go to Rome. He probably didn't envision going this way. But he ends up there, and then he's chained to this Praetorian guard. And, and this is significant, and Paul's mentioning this because it's significant. 
Because the Praetorian Guard, how many of you have seen the movie Braveheart? You know, the Praetorian. Yeah, I don't know if you get into this stuff. But guys, you know what I'm talking It's the Praetorian, same guys. These guys, the Praetorian, these are the, the bodyguards of Caesar. They're the ones that are in and out of the palace. But it's not only that. History tells us that these guys were super influential. Number one, they're the best of the best militarily. It's like a guy who's graduated West Point and then went through the SEALs, and now he's part of the Secret Service. I mean, that's how the Praetorians were. And they would serve for 12 years, and they would kind of always be known as a Praetorian, but then after that, they would go into politics, business, and all these things. And they were very influential, upwardly mobile people in society. They were also increasingly political. You see that through history as well, that these guys started wielding major power. Well, this is the type of person that Paul's trying to reach. And guess what? One of them has to sit with Paul for six hours in six-hour shifts, 24 hours a day, for two years, the Praetorian Guard is cycling through their shift with Paul to be chained to this man for six hours to hear everything he says, all that he's talking about. And, and Paul is having conversations with these guys, and now all of a sudden, some of these guys are taking seriously the gospel. Some of them, no doubt, are becoming believers, and Paul's saying, at this point, Two years later, what's happening is now Paul's case and who he represents and the whole message of Jesus and the gospel is known throughout the Praetorian Guard and all throughout the palace because of that. He's made this huge, huge impact. And he's pumped about it. He, he's excited. He's like, wow, I didn't really see this coming, but this is, this is really happening. Why? And why, is he, why can he rejoice? Because the gospel's his priority. The message of Christ, number one. And it should be the same way with us. You see, as believers, we, we've received something from God that we don't deserve. And it's the greatest gift in the universe. The gift of salvation that, that we receive simply through belief. By trusting in his son and what he did for us. And our priority should be the same thing. Spreading the gospel. That's our job. That's what God wants us to do. And so all of us, that needs to show up in our lives as believers. And to the extent it does show up in our lives is to the extent that we have joy and rejoice in the gospel. So we attach ourselves to a, a local church that emphasizes the gospel. We, we point others that we know to Christ by sharing the gospel or inviting them to church so, so they'll hear, because the, we want this for them. Or, or we give and support, you know, however, just some way it needs to show up that you're, you also are involved in proclaiming the gospel. And he does that, and because he sees that's being done, he's super excited. He responds with joy. Uh, I got to tell you, I've mentioned this before, but there's two little words here that really intrigue me. I love this little phrase. It's only five letters in the Greek, tigar, and it's in verse 18. And we translate NASB, it says, what then? 
And you could, you could translate that different ways. The, the way I like to translate it is, so what? Who cares? I mean, it, it can be, tra- it's just this little phrase that says, who cares? So what? What then? Is, is what he's getting to. And everything kind of hinges on this little phrase. He's saying bad things happen. This is the Paul who previous to this has been beaten several times. Just in the stories that we've talked about the last couple of Sundays. He's been imprisoned several times. People are trying to kill him. He's been in a shipwreck. He's been lost at sea. You know, everywhere he goes, he's got to wonder who's trying to murder him. He's constantly in jail, on trial, everything, all this stuff. And, and what's he say? So what? That needs to be our response. If we're rejoicing in the gospel... And we see all these, bad, if, if we could just kind of, well, well, maybe God's using this. You know, and if he is, so what? Because there's bigger things happening. We, we need to think like Paul. Something goes wrong in our life. So what? We lose our job. So what? Get another one. Our car breaks down. So what? Get another one. The roast burns. So what? Get another one. The pastor preaches a lousy sermon. So what? Send him to Cancun to like for a three-week break so he can get refreshed and, you know, really be able to study the word. And, you know, that's a good thing. The point is, whatever's going on with Paul, he's like, hey, so what? Is the gospel advanced? Is this Instead of asking, hey, why me? How could this be happening? Am I doing something wrong? Oh, I'm getting embittered. God, this isn't fair. All these charges that we, or just being crushed where we're just totally immobilized. His thought process is, is God using my situation? Can God use my situation? And then he realizes, yes, my situation is being used by God in two ways. Number one, the whole Praetorian guard has heard the message of Christ. And now it's all through the palace. I've been waiting for my shot to just share the gospel with Caesar. And while I'm waiting, the whole palace knows. And then secondly, he's saying, and not only that... The fact that I'm in chains, that has caused the other believers out that aren't imprisoned in Rome to preach Christ more boldly. Some of them don't even have good motives. Some of them are doing it kind of in opposition, but it's, it's the right gospel. They may not like Paul, they may not like his style, but it's the gospel. And so we say, wow, the gospel is being advanced. And in that, and that's how he can sit in his chains and have a grin on his face. And he's rejoicing. And he has true happiness, peace, and joy in what we would consider terrible, terrible situations. He says, so what? I will rejoice. Bad things happen, so what? I will rejoice in the gospel. This didn't go right, so what? I will rejoice. How do we do that? How do we respond to circumstances that way? If that's the response, if that's number one of what he wants us to do, 
How do we get it in our mind to respond that? Well, well, it brings us to the second point. And that is that we need to remember God reigns. You see, part of having this joy is understanding the underpinnings of life that actually God reigns. And because of that, if you're a follower, it's really a win-win proposition. Because if you have Christ and you have an eternity with him, so what? Anything we experience in life, it's a drop in the bucket. It, it, it's, a, it's a snap. It's a blink of an eye. Compared to our eternity. And that's where he's going with this. And in the next verse, he writes one of the most cherished verses in all of the Bible. And it's right here in verse 21. Listen to what he says. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you see what he's saying there? Yeah, I'm awaiting trial. Yeah, and all this stuff. And Caesar will either say... You're good to go, free, or we're going to end you right now. And he says, it doesn't matter. It's win-win. And he kind of fleshes it out. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here's what he means by that. But if I am to live on in the flesh, well, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Win-win. He says, I get to share the, I'm going to get an audience with Caesar. I've already shared the gospel so much, it's all through the palace already. He may already have heard it. But I get a face-to-face with Caesar and share the gospel. And if he kills me, great. I'm with Christ for eternity, which is way better than anything I can experience on this earth, as it is for all of us. Or he lets me live, and great, then I can be an asset to the churches, and I can help people grow in their faith, and he says, in their joy in Jesus. Wow. Win-win. It's hard to get a guy like this down, right? It's like no matter what you do to him, it's like, oh, great. We're going to kill you. Great. (laughs) How about your circumstances? What's going on in your life? What's your joy factor like? What's happening in your life right now that's keeping you from having joy? Scripture's painting this picture picture that for a believer we should be joyful we basically we should just be happy i know sometimes we try to draw the distinction but it's basically we should just be happy people we should be joyful so what's keeping you 
from being joyful? What's going on in your life that, that's keeping you from experiencing the joy every day that God wants you to have? That's what we need to focus on. Because when he says rejoice, and again I say rejoicing is a choice that we need to remind ourselves to make. Isn't this cool? Think, think about a, a religion. Think about a God who wants us to, he gives us what we don't deserve. And, and we can get it simply through faith by understanding that we're jacked up sinners that don't deserve anything except for separation from a holy, righteous God forever. And he offers us salvation that we get through faith. And then he'll never leave us, never forsake us. And he promises us, promises us an eternity with him that we cannot lose. So we win. Rejoice. Remember that just rejoice. Make the decision to rejoice. Just rejoice in the gospel. Second response, remember God's in control. He loves you. He's ultimately in control of all things. Well, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Well, he is. And he wants the best for you. Ultimately, that's what he wants for you. The best. There's no downside here. God loves us. God loves you. He's in control. Rest in that. Have joy in that. How, how does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because God does reign. And because God does reign, it brings us to the third response. Rejoice. Remember, God's in control. And because he is in control, it makes all the sense in the world for us to reorient our life around Jesus. And we need to keep doing that, by the way. We keep reorienting our life with Jesus in the center, around Jesus. I know sometimes there, there's some pushback, like people say, well, what's up with God? Like, it's always all about God. It's all about Jesus. And, you know, we're called to praise him and serve him. And, do, you know, it seems a little bit egotistical. But, but it's not that. It, it's, it's Christian hedonism. It's, it's God saying, God's teaching us, God's showing us that us praising God is the best thing for us. That, that's what brings true joy. Us orienting our life around Jesus, it, it's the way that'll make us more happy and more joyful than anything else. What's the alternative? To live selfishly? That just messes us up. That just destroys our life. That just burns our relationships. No, he teaches us to serve him, to put him first and others ahead of our own needs. And when we do this, we have relationships that are far deeper and more beneficial and more joyful than anything we would ever have. You see, his call for us to follow him benefits us in this life 
let alone the life to come. That's what he wants for us. Here's what he, here's what he says next. When I say reorient our life around Jesus, look, look how he puts it in verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I got to tell you, I read this and I'm like, uh-oh. Conduct your, live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, that's impossible for me. I, I don't deserve the gospel. I'm not worthy of the gospel. How do I live like I am worthy? Luckily for us, it's not luck, but Paul, he, he puts that out for us. He explains what he's saying. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are, and then here's what he's talking about. I'm going to hear about you whether I get to see you or I, I die, and, but before I die, I hear about you. And here's what I want to hear. Here, here's what living worthy is, he says. I will hear from you that you are, number one, standing firm in one spirit. You church in Philippi, that you're standing firm in one spirit. He's talking about unity. He says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not only are you standing firm in the spirit, but that we're coming together in unity for the faith of the gospel, that we're making a difference, that we're proclaiming God's message, that we're standing strong in that. And then the third thing, he says, and do it fearlessly. He says, Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conduct which you saw in me, same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. He's saying, stand firm. Stand firm in the spirit. It's the spirit of God that unites us as a church. And then he says, as you're standing in unity, strive for the gospel. Contend for the gospel. Come together to propagate the gospel. And then he says, expect opposition. Expect persecution. Don't let that bother you. You will have opposition. Stand firm. Do it courageously and fearlessly. Why? He's in control. Win-win. Rejoice anyway. That's what he's telling us. So my question is, how about you? Where's your joy? What circumstance is robbing you of your joy? What's causing you to be bitter? What's causing conflict? That, that's how we want to land today. I'm going to have Carter come out, and he's going to lead us in, in a song. And that, that's what I want you to be thinking about. What's affecting your joy? What's diminishing your joy? Hard times, loss, pain? Are you questioning God or are you bitter against God? I think some people, it's not questioning God or bitter. It's like you're just crushed. 
Some circumstances just crush the joy out of you. You're not mad at God. You're, you're, just, you're just broken. Rejoice. Rejoice. Remember, God's in control. Win-win. Remember, God's, he's sovereign. God reigns. And third, all the time we need to keep reorienting our life around Jesus. Let's, let's stand together. And, uh, Father, as we search our hearts, Lord, and we would ask your spirit to probe our hearts as well. Those of us here who are believers, Lord, we're asking you to, to focus on our lives and, and help us to see what's hindering our joy that you call all of your followers to have. How cool is that? Father, help us to rejoice always. Help us to remember you reign. And God, help us to, to always orient our life. And, and sometimes we need to reorient our life around Jesus. God, help us to get back to you. In Christ's name, amen. So as Carter.